Well, good morning again. It's always good to be with you all on a Sunday morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Romans. As we've carried on through our series in Romans, we have reached a a turning point in Romans. Romans 1 through 8 is this wonderful picture of the gospel of what Jesus has done about how the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And we just got through sort of almost the the high Sierra of the book of Romans in chapter 8, where we see that language of nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we come to Romans 9. And that's what we get to look at this morning. And, and Romans 9, 10, and 11 are this, this part of Romans that takes up a question and says, I, I understand all that's been said. I understand that the gospel is true, but I have a few questions about how does this actually work? How does God's sovereignty factor into our salvation? And so we're going to talk about things, fair warning this morning, like predestination and election, because that's where this text takes us. And so whether you're excited about that or kind of buckling in, that's, that's what God's Word has for us this morning, a picture of God's sovereignty in our salvation. What does it mean that God is the one who orchestrates things and brings them to pass? And as we turn to this passage, I hope that we'll also find encouragement in what it points to, that we have a sovereign God, and that is good news for you and I. So would you stand this morning, and we'll read together from God's Word. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And this t- about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this text this morning, as we come to this picture of your sovereignty and your grace and your mercy, and your love, would you instruct us? Would you give us eyes to see what you are saying? Open hearts to listen. Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning? We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. About a month ago, just as the situation in Afghanistan was deteriorating, there were a group of Afghan pastors 
who were meeting outside of Afghanistan with other church leaders in the area to sort of have some encouragement, just ministry training. And these, these same pastors, about a month before that, had, had registered with the government and basically said, we are Christian believers. And they had done that with the hopes of securing freedom of religion for future generations. They had taken that, that step. And these Afghan pastors were meeting in this retreat as the Taliban was encroaching and moving forward. And they met for worship on Sunday morning. And as you can imagine, the situation is tense. They're concerned for family members, for their future. And, and where do you think they went in Scripture? The, the account that came from this, this meeting. They went a variety of places. But one of the places they went was, was Romans chapter 9. And that might seem surprising to you, but maybe it doesn't. Because what we see in this passage is a picture that God is, is sovereign over all things. All things are part of his, his work and his plan, as we've seen already in Romans. And, and this passage, it, it brings out his, his sovereignty. Now, that doesn't mean it's sort of a, a, an easy thing to think through. It doesn't mean it's just sort of this nice little pat answer, God is sovereign, and we just move on. But they went here for encouragement, for comfort. And so this morning as we come to Romans chapter 9, which I know is a, a difficult text, not necessarily because of what it, how to understand it, but because it, it creates some questions. Ones we'll take up today and also next week as we look at the rest of this, this passage. And there are really two questions that, that come out of this, this text, two sort of categories of questions. One is sort of the intellectual questions. How does this work? How does God's sovereignty work? How do this mean, what does this mean in terms of our salvation? And it, it, it might seem like a puzzle to be figured out. That's one category of questions, and we'll take those up because Paul does. But there's also another category of questions that Romans 9 raises, and they're more in the, you could say, emotional category. The wrestling with God's sovereignty and say, God, I understand you are sovereign, but what does that actually mean, and how do I live in response to that? And that's actually where Paul begins. He begins with this, this difficult truth of wrestling with what God's sovereignty means. He doesn't actually state initially the, the question that he's wrestling with. It takes a little while to get there. The situation is that God has made promises to his people Israel, that they would be a great nation, that they would, they would worship him. And, and Paul is saying that there, there are some of his fellow Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who haven't believed. And, and we've just read that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the question is for these believers who were Jews to say, why are some of my, my kinsmen, why aren't they believing? Has God's promises failed? That's the question that, that, that Paul brings to the forefront as he begins this passage. And then in verse 1, in response to that, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. This is a fairly unique way for Paul to talk. He sort of three ways emphasizes, I'm, I'm really telling you the truth here. My conscience confirms it, not just on its own, but, but with the Spirit. And I'm also speaking the truth in Christ because of the gospel. All that has come true, I, I am telling you the truth. This is, this is true. could have been that some people just sort of dismissed Paul and said, well, you don't really care about the Jews who aren't believing. Paul said, no, that's not, that's not the case. In fact, in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's some, that's some big language Big words to describe what he is he's feeling. Great sorrow. 
unceasing anguish. He, he wants those who are lost, those who have not believed in Jesus, to come and believe. That's the desire of his heart. He wants that. So much so that he adds in verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters. Cursed and cut off. Now, he phrases it in, in this way that is kind of unique. He's, it's almost as if, for I could wish, I, I know it's not possible, I know it's not even, it's not even good that I, I think that way because God has, has brought me into his, his people, but there's a part of me that says, I could wish that I was cursed and cut off from Christ. That's, a, that's some pretty deep emotional language that he begins with. Great sorrow. Wishing that he was cut off from Christ so that these brothers, kinsmen according to the flesh, would, would come in. And he sort of continues to build to his point here, working through sort of the, the sorrow that he, he encounters. Who are these people that he's sorrowful for? Verse 4, they're Israelites. And then he lists this whole variety of things that make the Israelites the, the Israelites that he's speaking of. According to the flesh, those who were born into these, these people of, of God. They, to them, belong the adoption. What is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about how in Exodus, God called Israel and said, you will be my, my firstborn. That was part of their, their promise. That was part of what these people had, the glory. God coming and dwelling with them in the tabernacle and the temple. The covenants from Abraham and, and moving on, all of these promises that were made, the giving of the law, which is, is good and perfect, as Paul has said. They had all of these things. This is who he's, he's talking about. The worship of the temple and the tabernacle and the promises. These are all the things that they have. And not only that, but they also had the patriarchs, this progression of people of faith, passing it down generation to generation leading ultimately to verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, comes Christ. All of this, and not just Christ in his humanity, but Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. This is, this is who he's talking about. People who had opportunities to hear, opportunities to respond in faith to God. And it's those people that he has sorrow for. Because they're not all believing. They're not all turning towards Christ in faith. So what do we do with that? We'll take up the question of God's sovereignty in just a moment. But before we do that, I think there's a few things we should just note from Paul's sort of initial foray into this passage. Consider his, his desire that the lost would know Jesus. Now, there's nothing in the text that says you must have the same desire as Paul, but Paul is a mature believer in Christ who has great sorrow at looking at people and saying, they don't know the gospel. I wish that they did. It's one thing to consider and, and consider in our own lives, do we have sorrow over the lost or we just sort of say, well, they've made their choice and move on with our lives. And also, just, just consider the, the depth of the language, the emotional language that he uses here. Many of us, I think, when we think of God's sovereignty, we come to it with a sort of stoic resolve. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? Well, we think God is sovereign. He's in control. I'll just sort of sit, and it's going to be okay. He's, he's sovereign. Now, there, there's something very good in that. But we also see mature believers in Scripture knowing that God is sovereign, knowing that he's in control, and still asking questions, still wrestling with God and saying, God, I, I trust you. I love you. I believe that what you do is best, but, but I don't understand. 
And that's what we see Paul doing here in part is that, that wrestling. And this calls us to reject sort of a, a stoicism and instead come in to see, to see what this text is saying and to consider it and to, to explore. Really to say, God, I, I, I want to know more of who you are. I want to, to believe. I remember uh, hearing a sermon on Romans 7 a long time ago, driving home with my parents. I don't know if you've ever had a sermon discussions in the car driving home. And so the question was, you know, God's sovereignty, free will, how do these things work together? And I, I don't remember what I said, but I think in like five minutes, I, th- I, I thought I had this airtight little argument that no one had ever thought of before. And my, my dad was kind enough to quickly uh, sort of dismantle that. Um, but I say that because that's sometimes how we deal with God's sovereignty, that it's just sort of an intellectual problem to be solved. I understood it. I, I, I read Romans 9. I understand what the text says. I'm good to go. And that's good, and I, I hope you can, can understand more of God's sovereignty today. But that doesn't mean that there won't be other times in your life where you know God is sovereign, and there's still the need to, to come and learn that again, to learn what he's doing in this situation, and to come and, and understand more of, of who he is. So with that, let's, let's, let's take up the, maybe the, the why question that Paul is asking here. Why are these people not believing? And what we'll see that it comes down to this idea of divine election, that God is the one who is, who is sovereign. What do we mean when we say God is sovereign? Well, maybe one of the illustrations or way of, of thinking about it is that God is a king. God is a king, and kings are in control of all things. They are sovereign. And so God, in his sovereignty, is the one who, for his eternal purposes and according to the counsel of his will, foreordains whatever comes to pass. It's what Paul is presenting here. And he does it beginning in verse 6 with this. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Those promises that God has made. God has made promises to his people. So did God fail somehow? Some Israelites are not believing. Did, Did God fail? He says, No. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now that's that's a big statement. And it's really a helpful statement as we think about how do we understand the Old Testament? How do we understand what God is doing with his, his people that he's calling? Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Are not all who are Israel are truly Israel. You could put that sort of sense in there. There, there are, in a sense, the, the physical Israel, and Paul has said that several times in this text, of the flesh, there's the physical Israel, and then there is the spiritual Israel. Those who have faith, those who believe in God, those who are regenerate, those who have received forgiveness, that's really what he's setting up here. So, of course, there are some who had those benefits, those who had the promises, those who had the worship, the covenants, all of that Jewish tradition, and yet don't have faith because there is a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. So God's word didn't fail, but this is how God has set it up. Verse 7, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, this next four verses or so is very dense. It's got a lot of Old Testament references, and so we just need to slow down and sort of see what Paul is doing. He's just made a big statement, not all who are Israel are truly Israel. And then what does he do? He gives us a couple Old Testament examples to show us how that works out. And the first example is Isaac and Ishmael. If 
you remember this, this story, remember Abraham has been promised a son. The son's not coming. The son's not coming. He tries to have a son through his wife's servant, and Ishmael is born. And it seems Abraham is moving forward with the idea that I guess this is going to be the child of the promise, the one who will be the father of many nations, all of that. And God says, actually, no, you're going to have another son. And your son, Isaac, will be the child of the promise. And so here, looking at Genesis 21, is where that reference there comes from. And it says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, how does that work? Why Isaac and and not Ishmael? Well, God chose. God chose and said, this is the one that I will use for my purposes. This is the child of the promise. And so Paul explains that example a little bit more in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Ishmael was a child of the flesh. Isaac was a child of the promise. That's what he's, he's setting up here, children of the promise. And, and for you and I, as we read this, this isn't just talking about some interesting Old Testament side notes, but it's telling us that as we have faith in Christ, as God has reached out to us and we've expressed faith in Christ and been joined to Christ, that, then we are children of the promise, that we are part of this, this story of God choosing, of God bringing a people together, not because of anything good in us, but because of what God has done. So we can stand as as children of the promise. He tells us what that promise said, verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. This is, again, reaching back a little bit further in Genesis when God meets with Abraham and promises him that a child will come. And we see that promise fulfilled. And so that's the first Old Testament example that Paul uses to, to flesh this out. And the next one is even a little more stark and really focuses our attention that it is God who chooses for his own purposes. Look at verse 9, or verse 10 rather. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. What are we doing? We're skipping a generation. So Isaac now is with his wife Rebekah. They're not able to have children. Isaac prays, Rebekah conceives, and there are these two children in her womb. And what does God do there? So again, the situation is almost more, there's nothing really to distinguish these two individuals in her womb, is there? They haven't been born yet. They haven't done anything. Same mother, same father. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. What distinguished Jacob and Esau? Well, God's sovereign choice, his, his divine election, his sovereign grace extended towards Jacob. That's, that's what Paul is, is saying here. And this is one of those, those moments in Scripture where we might try to come up with a lot of different answers to this question. We might say, how, how, can, we, how can we understand this differently? Um, and even as we get into verse 13 in a moment, some of us try to maybe do a, a public relations job for, for God, and we say we need to fix this text somehow. We need to make it a little bit more palatable to us. It's not really our job this morning. Our job this morning is to come to God's Word and say, what is God saying? 
What is the truth that he is communicating to us? And what we see here is that really what it comes down to, the thread that runs through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now as Christ has come to us, is that our salvation depends on God's unconditional election of us. It doesn't depend on anything in us. And that's actually good news for you and I, because if it depends on anything in us, there's really no hope of us coming to salvation, but it rests on his unconditional election. Those God predestined to life before the foundation of the world, according to his purpose, according to his counsel, according to his will, those are the ones that are chosen in Christ out of grace and love for us. God didn't simply look down the sort of hallway of time and say, there are some that will respond in faith. He didn't look down and say, there are some that are a little more deserving of my grace and I'll give it to them. No, he looked down and he didn't, didn't foresee, he foreordained. He brought the things to come that are good and perfect and according to his will. Maybe we could simplify it this way and say, who chooses who becomes a Christian? This text is saying that it's, it's God who chooses. In his sovereign grace, that is how we are called and we've seen this already in, in Romans. If we look back at Romans 8, verse 30, sometimes called the golden chain of redemption, it says this, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That progression, those things fit together. One leads to the next, leads to the next. If God is predestined, he will call. If he calls, he will justify. If he justified, he will glorify. Now, there are objections to this. I know there might be questions popping up in your mind. Now, we're stopping right at verse 13 today. Verse 14 and following will actually answer some of our objections. The first objection that might come into your mind is, is this fair? Is this fair? Is this truly fair? We don't have time to, to answer all of that, but I do encourage you to read forward into the rest of this chapter where it will answer some of those Paul rejects that in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is this unjust on God's part? By no means. I'll save, save the rest of that text for next week. <laughs> maybe, maybe we can illustrate it this way. God is not playing some sort of cosmic eeny, meeny, miny, mo and just sort of randomly picking some people and, and, and others. The only hint that we ever have in Scripture of why God chooses some and not others is places that talk about how he chooses things that are weak and not powerful. People who are in need. Those are the ones that God draws in. And in a sense, that's, that's all of us who are here. We need this salvation. We need this. Another sort of uh, classic illustration that I'm borrowing from, from a pastor named D. James Kennedy is this. Imagine you have five friends, and you overhear that they are going to rob a bank. And so you hear them plotting, you hear them planning, and you say, okay, you, you go to them and you say, you shouldn't do this. There will be consequences if you go and rob this bank. And they don't listen to you. They keep planning and they go and they, they rob this bank. But just before they do, you go and you, you tackle one of them. You restrain them and you say, no, you're not, you're not doing this. And the other four go, they rob the bank, they get caught, like you said, and as they're sitting in there in incarceration, they come to you and they, or you go to them and they say, why, why didn't you stop us? At that point, is it really their fault? Well, it, it is. You, you warned them and you, and you came and you, you stopped one, but the other ones are responsible for their 
their actions. And that's in some way what, what we see here. What, what does this salvation really rest on? He says it in verse 12. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's, that's the gospel there. It rests on grace. Only grace can save us. Only God coming and saying it is by grace you are saved through faith. That's the only, only way this passage is good news because it shows that all of us who are saved have received God's, God's grace. It doesn't depend on something good in us, something that is unique about us, but it's on God's sovereign, divine, electing grace. But there's one more verse here. Verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's a strong one-two sort of statement. It comes from the book of Malachi. Just in the opening passage of Malachi, Malachi 2, verses, or 1, verses 2 and 3, has God's people coming to him and saying, how have you loved us? They're going through some struggle. They're going through some times where things aren't going well for God's people. And they come to God and say, how have you loved us? And this is part of God's response. He says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He's reminding them of his history of caring for them, that he has called them as his treasured possession, that he has called them out. That's what this is going at. And Esau, who grew up to be the father of the Edomites, are compared. And things are not going well for Edom. And God reminds them that he is in control, that he is loving and caring, that he has called them as his treasured possession. But how do we understand those, those two words there, loved and hated? Especially when we're talking about God and, and his character and, and those realities. There are different ways that people have understood this. One is to say that this is really a, a sort of a, a common idiom used in this day. And remember maybe in the Gospels where Jesus says that we are to, to hate our families. And really what he's saying there is we are to, to be so focused on Christ that that is what consumes us. Some have read that into this text. And we know that there is a fact that God does hate sin, that he rages against it, that he is not pleased with unbelievers, and his holiness is enough to make that justifiable. He is holy. He knows that our sin causes outrage and hatred towards it. There's also a sense that these words, loved and hate, are not focused primarily just on sort of an emotion in God, but on his actions, this is how John Calvin reads this text, and he, he points to the facts that really this love compels Jesus or God rather to move forward in salvation, to accept them. And that same disdain over sin moves in the case of Esau to reject them. But maybe the best way to kind of tie this together is actually to come and say, what does this all point to? As we've read through this text, it's easy to get sort of lost in the details and, and miss the point that so much of what is being said here is dependent on Jesus. So much of it is dependent on our great Savior that meets the great sorrow with his, his gospel truth. Con consider it this way. Let's go back to verses 4 and 5 for a moment. Remember, it says there, there's this list of things that the Israelites have. Adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And where does all of that end up culminating? Well, there in verse 5, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. 
Do you catch, catch what's being, being done there? God overall, Christ who is in the flesh, comes from the Israelites, but is God himself. And, and so much so that all of these benefits are, are reworked. Think, think of the adoption. You know, God spoke of the Israelites as being adopted, but, but remember the adoption we talked about in Romans. The adoption of sons by which we call, cry, Abba, Father. His spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is what Christ has done. He's come and he's, he's opened this all up and given us these wonderful benefits of adoption, the glory. The book of John says when Jesus comes, we, we, he comes in the glory of God. God incarnate, bringing his, his glory. We saw that back in Romans 5, verse 2. Through him, we have gained access into this faith in which we now stand, grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of of the glory of God. All of these benefits to Israel have been reworked and expanded through the gospel. The covenants, we stand in the new covenant. The giving of the law, now the law has been shown that it cannot save us, but, but Christ does save us. The worship, we have a better worship than the, the, the Passover. We have the sacrament, and we have the fruition of those promises. All found in Christ, who is God over all, forever blessed. Amen. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said that I know whom I have chosen. It drives us in this passage to, to Jesus. To understand all of this through the picture of Jesus and a Savior who came, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died and rose, so that by his grace, it would not be because of works, but because of him who calls. We need to see Jesus to really understand this, this passage, to really see what it points to, that there is a Jesus who offers salvation in and through his sovereign grace. We need to keep Jesus at the center. A few applications and we'll be done. I know there's still probably a rush of questions that come to mind. We'll pick some of those up next week. Romans 9, 10, and 11, we'll, we'll answer these questions slowly, methodically. It'll work through these questions like, well, what about our responsibility? What do I contribute? Do I do anything? How does this work? We'll look at that in Romans, Romans 10. Do we need to preach the gospel? If God's just going to choose people, why bother preach? Well, Paul will answer that. Those are questions that are not foreign to Scripture, but actually find their answer there. But this passage does invite those questions. Paul anticipates them. So if you have questions, turn to God's Word. Look at it. Consider what he is, he is saying. And as you do, remember that it is grace. All of this depends on on grace. It is grace that makes this good news, that it is God's sovereign choice. One theologian put it this way, if there, if there is harshness that you see in this text, a large part of that may be the fact that you aren't aware of your unholiness, aware of your sin. If there is harshness, we find that it comes in the part that we overestimate our righteousness, and it must all be grace. This passage should lead us to radical humility. Too often, this passage leads to pride. That somehow we think we've figured something out. And we really don't know. This, we do, this rests in God's sovereign mystery, His grace. It shouldn't lead us to pride, but radical humility. It should also lead us to security. If our salvation doesn't depend on us, then it rests on Him alone. And that is good news. And lastly, this should move us to praise. Good theology should move us to 
doxology, to praise of God. And it does that right here. Even Paul, as he's wrestling with God's sovereignty, trying to make sense of it, what, is it, what does he do? Who is God over all, in verse 5, blessed forever, amen. At the end of this section, Romans 11, he'll do the same thing. He'll move into praise. Not that he understands everything perfectly, but praise of God and who he is. He says, I don't understand everything, God, but I thank you for saving me. You are holy, wise, good. And as we move in that and see the person of Jesus, this truth becomes more beautiful and believable to us as we move towards worship. During communion today, we're going to sing a song. And if you flip through your bulletin, its title is, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. Remember the first time I, I remember singing that song? It was in a church my wife and I attended uh, in St. Louis. And we would occasionally, a few times a year, have sort of a, an evening service where people would just pick hymns. And invariably, there was this one individual who chose this hymn. I remember the first time sitting there listening to this hymn and, and kind of looking around and thinking, these are just a bunch of like stoic people singing here, kind of like, whatever God wants, it's going to be okay. But as I attended that church more, got to know more people's stories in that church, I saw something different. I saw people who had walked through really difficult things, who, as they walked through those things, saw God's sovereignty and they saw his character. They saw his love and his mercy. And so they could sing those words, not as sort of stoic resolve, but as people who knew a great, glorious, gracious God, who knew that what God does is, is right and good because he is holy and good, because he is gracious, and he is all-wise and all-knowing. And that's really where this, this passage leaves us, that we can rejoice that we are children of the promise by God's grace, not because of what we have done. And because it is of his grace, we can trust him. Submit to him and say, Lord, I don't understand everything, but you do, and I trust you, I love you, and I want to worship you in response to who you are. My prayer is that that would be our move this morning, even as we come to the table and as we sing together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Lord, this is a passage that is a, a, a wonderful gift to us to see a picture of who you are. Lord, as we move further into this book of Romans, as we move further into your gospel, Lord, would we see more of your character, that we would find hope and encouragement there. We ask this in your name. Amen.